Thank you. It's a, <clears throat> it's a joy to be here. I want to thank Thomas out of the shoot just for covering for me while I was away. You'll get that in a minute. Just give it time. Uh, for those of you who have um, met us, we, we are delighted to be here, and we have enjoyed getting to know you so much and are just so thankful to have found a church home here. Uh, it's just really ministered to us to be among our church family here. As many of you know, and I've gone through a recent trial, I had a kidney stone removed, um, a 10 by 6 millimeter kidney stone in my right kidney. Uh, they said it was about the size of a 9 millimeter bullet. And so um, it was quite a trial, and, and um, I'm thankful to have that out. Uh, and now the real test becomes because I have to start a new diet. Uh, how many of you are dieters out there? <laughs> yeah, so... I'm, I'm proud of myself, though. I've lost a, an eighth of a pound already. And so uh, I think the pizza and chocolate last night sabotaged me. Um, but I'm, I'm on the road to uh, a new way of life here. Uh, there, there is, uh, this morning we are going to be looking at a passage that discusses being involved versus being committed. Being a, a follower of Christ who follows him around out of sort of fascination uh, or what you can get out of it versus being committed to him. And, uh, you know, it's well said that a, a kamikaze pilot who flies 50 missions is involved, but he's not committed. You'll get that one later, too. Trust me. Uh, one of the greatest theologians that this country has ever Produced Jonathan Edwards, uh, you'll remember he uh, he back in the 1700s uh, wrote a list of 70 res resolutions that he was committed to to follow Christ. You can buy those; they sell them on Amazon. You can buy them in a bookstore. But 70 rev resolutions. Uh, this man understood commitment to the gospel of Christ. Uh, beyond that. Most of you may not know that Martin Luther actually wrote resolutions, too. And Martin Luther boiled his down to two. He was a lot less wordy than Jonathan Edwards. And his resolutions were, number one, resolved that every man should live to the glory of God. That's a good resolution, right? And second, that whatever others do... Uh, whether others do this or not, I will. Those are good resolutions, right? And this morning, uh, we are here today because of the steadfast commitment of others to the gospel of Christ over the centuries. Uh, we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, and sometimes I do wonder what it's going to be like for those who come after us. What are we going to leave them with? So this morning, I would like to challenge you uh, in your commitment to Christ. And so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 9. And we're going to look at verses 57 to 62 this morning. And I'll read the passage before we get a running start at it here. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, that is Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. I want to give you a little bit of background information as to what's going on here. This is what's known as Luke's travel log. And that first statement there, as they were going along the road, kind of tips us off to that. This section in Luke, uh, it runs from 951 all the way over to 927, is what's known as his travel log. He is on his way to Jerusalem, his final trek down to Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified and put to death. He's, in a sense, set his face like flint. And you can look at uh, 953, just back up a little bit there. It says he was traveling toward Jerusalem, verse 53. And if you look in the margin note there, it says his face was proceeding toward Jerusalem. He was set. He was fixed. He was going to Jerusalem. And there was nothing that was going to deter him from the date he had with destiny. You can also reference 1322, 1711. I won't go there right now. We just aren't going to have time for that. But you can look those up later on your own time. So at this point in Luke's narrative, just so you know, uh, Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, has cast him out. We read about that in Luke 4. He's been kicked out of his own hometown. He's left Capernaum by his own choice and is now on his way to Jerusalem. He has, uh, as he's on his way to Jerusalem, he's traveling through Samaria from the north to the south. He's going through the towns of the Samaritans. And as he's passing through, they're rejecting him too. But, but in the sense, the crowds are still gathering. And so they're gathering because they're fascinated in watching the signs and the miracles and the things that he's doing. But they're not really committed followers. They're more what we would call casual disciples. Casual disciples. So this is the context. These, these three vignettes that I read for you this morning, these, these take place in the context of Jesus' ongoing rejection. Remember, his, his popularity was up, 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 up. And we read in John 6 that he said, you know, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and everybody left. And on the way down, it was going down, down, down. His popularity is waning, and the, the crowds are just following him for the food and the fascination, but not following him because they want to be disciples. Now, two of these vignettes, you can pop over to Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22, and it's the same story. It's the same story over there, and it provides a little bit different perspective few different things there, but mostly the same. So this morning, what I want to do 
is we're going to look at the text and and we're going to see Jesus invalidate three flimsy excuses for not following him. And we want to look at it this way so that we'll be challenged uh, to count the cost of being his disciple. We're going to count the cost this morning. And many of you have voiced to me and I've heard over the years, I feel called to follow Christ. I want to be in ministry. I want to follow Christ. Well, if Christ is calling, uh, my answer to you this morning is pick up the phone. Right? Pick up the phone. So I'm going to challenge you. You know, if I've noticed any one thing about the ministry here, we have a little bit of a difference in philosophy and ministry. Where's Thomas? So Thomas kind of has this idea of leading you up to this precipice and, and getting you to, to make a commitment to Christ. And I totally agree with that. My role is to push you over the cliff. <laughs> so the first, uh, the first flimsy excuse that we're going to look at this morning is the loss of comfort. Now, I like to alliterate my messages. And as I was going through this, I told my wife, This works, right? Uh, So it's the loss of comfort, the loss of fortune, and the loss of family, right? Well, my first point was going to be fluff, the loss of fluff, but my wife thought you might not appreciate my sense of humor in that. So the loss of comfort or the loss of fluff in verses 57 to 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. What a statement, huh? But look at Jesus' reply. He says to him, The foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere. If you are seeking comfort to follow after Christ, you are barking up the wrong tree. You are not going to find comfort. And why is that? Because this world has said that it rejects the Son of Man, right? The world and all of its systems rejects the Son of God. Now, you're here because you believe, but the world and its values don't appreciate Christ at all. So you can imagine that Christ is telling you, hey, if you want to follow me, you may have to give up some comfort. And notice the text. It says, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Uh, This someone, some of you may have it read a certain one. Uh, The idea over in Matthew 8, 19, he tells us it's a scribe. So a scribe has come up to Jesus and he has said this arrogant claim. I will follow you wherever you go. And this scribe also addresses him as teacher. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, the scribes, as you know, were a class of scholars who who taught and copied and instructed the people from the law of God. And they appear in the Gospels primarily as Jesus' opponents. They're not usually on his side. And notice what this guy says. He says, wherever you go. I won't throw a lot of language at you here, but this is what we know as a present subjunctive. And what that means is, wherever you may go, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you may go. Now, remember the context. Where is Jesus about to go? 
He's about to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. Really? You really want to follow me? Here's where I'm going. Hop on board. You have to understand the scribe is the one initiating this conversation. See, this isn't Jesus challenging somebody. This is somebody coming up to Jesus and saying, Hey, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. By the way, uh, we've said Jesus is going to be crucified. You know that Jesus was not the only man who was ever crucified, right? I, I think sometimes we forget that. This was a common criminal's death. It's not like a glorious thing. It's not like I'm going to go and it's going to be this glorious thing and there'll be photographers all around. And No, it's, it's I'm going there. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be basically shredded to a pulp. I'm going to die a horrible death like a common criminal. You really want to follow me to that? See, the significance in the cross is not that Jesus died on a cross. It's that the God-man died on a cross. Lots of men died on crosses. But Jesus was the God-man. That's the significance. Anyway, this arrogant bragging sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Remember on the night when Jesus was betrayed? Compare it with Peter's confession. Uh, just before his denial, 1337 of the book of John. Jesus says, why can't we follow you now? Or uh, John, uh, Peter, why can't we follow you now, Jesus? I'll follow you wherever you go. I will die for you, Jesus. Really? <laughs> really, Peter? Will you die for me? And remember, uh, church history tells us that Peter would be crucified later. But he even asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel that he could even be crucified in the same way the Lord was crucified. So in all three of these dialogues, Jesus has the last word. I, that is something I want you to see. Jesus always has the last word. And in this one in particular, he says, hey, listen, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And grammatically speaking, all three of these subjects share the same metaphorical conclusion. What do I mean by that? Well, this phrase, has nowhere to lay his head, it, it fits with each one of these subjects, okay? In other words, the foxes have holes in which to lay their heads. The birds have nests in which to lay their heads. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There's nowhere he can rest. There's nowhere he can call home. He's been rejected everywhere, even his hometown. And one other thing I want you to notice here, literally it says the birds of the sky, or in, in Hebrew it would be the birds of heaven. And, and then what that means is they're likely wild birds. And, and the thing about birds and the thing about foxes is they live vagabond lives. They're always on the move. They're always on the go. And, and Jesus is saying, even they're better off than he is. Even they have a place to lay their head when he doesn't. You really want to follow me? This is what you're in for. You're going to lose your comfort. 
You know, early in the Gospels, as I said, we read about this upward trajectory of Jesus. And, and as he's doing these signs and wonders, like over in Matthew 9, 26, it's, it says literally he became in the Greek famous. He became famous for doing these signs and wonders. Everybody wanted to know him. Everybody wanted to follow him. And now here, the rejection everywhere is just coming, coming, coming. You have no grasp, Jesus says to this man, what you would be facing if you were to follow me in discipleship. And you would think, hey, doesn't he want people to follow him? Well, yes, he does, but he wants them to consider what they're in for. If you were to follow me, you would be called to give up the comforts of this world. You may live and die in obscurity. You may die a common death as a criminal on a Roman cross. You may be put to death by stoning. Do you really want to sign up for this? There is no comfort where I'm heading. So Jesus hits this scribe right where he's most vulnerable, right? Right between the eyes. No fluff. You want to be a part of Messiah's ministry? Then follow me. You're going to lose your status. You're going to lose your standing in society. And and the interesting thing is, you know, somebody says, I I will die for you, Jesus. And here we are 2,000 years later, and uh, people say stuff like that. And you think, yes, but will you live for him? Will you die for him? That's easy, right? That's easy. You just be put to death. But how about struggling every single day with your sin? How about instead of just living life, pushing forward and advancing the gospel for Christ? That's the challenge, right? Facing the ongoing rejection of this world day after day after day, living for Christ. That may, in some ways, be more difficult than dying for him. I want you to notice in the text, not only did this man not respond back to Jesus, but nowhere does it say that he actually followed him. And we can only assume that the man did not follow Jesus. Because typically, in the Gospels, it tells us when people follow him. So it's a safe bet that this man did not follow Jesus. Matthew 4:18 to 25 we read about the disciples as soon as Jesus called them they followed him right it was it was just like that follow me they left the fishing boats they left the fishing nets they followed him now I, this is where i want to challenge us this morning i challenge myself on this too giving up comfort willingly is tough it, it's tough for individuals who have grown up living comfortable lives. You know, Meridian is the number one city in Idaho. It's the safest city. It's pretty posh here. It's pretty nice. It's tough to give up comfort, right? But consider what Jesus gave up to come to earth and to be our substitute. Right? Philippians 2. He had all the glory in heaven. Right? 
He was there in heaven with the Father, face to face, enjoying fellowship. And and he gave all that up to come here and to die a criminal's death. I marvel at that. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? So, comparatively speaking, anything you might give up for the privilege of following Christ would be small in comparison, don't you think? I mean, giving up your comfort is a flimsy excuse for not following Christ. And I know this because if there was ever a comfort lover in this world, right here, I like soft, fluffy things. I like comfort. I don't like to be uncomfortable. But you know, following Christ means being uncomfortable. And they tell you, you know, in chaplain ministry, are you comfortable being uncomfortable? Because you're going to walk into a room with somebody dying and you're going to try to minister to this family and their beliefs are going to probably be all over the place and you're going to have to try and minister the love of Christ to them. It's uncomfortable. I'll tell you right now, it's uncomfortable. But I'm not there for me. I'm there for Christ. Right? These people need to know the gospel. They need to know the love of Christ. That's why I'm there. And if I have an opportunity, praise the Lord. And if I don't, I'm still the hands and feet of Christ. I'm still there for them, loving them. And I'm not here to tout myself in any way. This is not me because this is, this is a new thing for me. I mean, the last three years I've been doing this, but, but being put in those positions has caused me to die to self more, to love people more. And if you don't love people, it's definitely not the right place for you. But we are called, right? We are called to follow Christ. And this is my way of doing it. And this is God's way of working through me. And so I praise God for those opportunities. The second flimsy excuse, look back at the text, verses 59 to 60, is the loss of fortune. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it says here, He said to another, follow me, but uh, he, that is this one, said, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And this is probably another scribe. Uh, This time the appeal was initiated by Jesus. So this guy gets blown off and he says, okay, he walks away. So Jesus turns over to this guy and goes, what about you? Why don't you follow me? Right. Uh, And this scribe, uh, he comes up with a great excuse. Right. And more than likely, this does not mean that the man's father was dead already. Just so you know. Uh, There's a parallel account to this over in Matthew 8, 21 to 22. 
Uh, This response by Jesus seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? After all, I mean, shouldn't I honor my father? Shouldn't I make sure my father gets a proper burial? You know, (laughs) it's biblical, right? This is a biblical excuse, Jesus. I I need to honor my dad. Well, as I said, the, the problem is this man's father was probably not dead. In reality, it's highly likely that the man's father was alive and well. Apparently, this was a common uh, figure of speech back then. What he's really saying is, let me wait until I receive my inheritance, then I'll follow you, Jesus. So it's likely that, that what he means is that he can't leave while his father is getting older every day. Uh, in order to follow Jesus around the countryside on this little trek and risk losing his inheritance. And it's true, in Jewish culture, the firstborn son was responsible and expected to honor their fathers by seeing to their proper burial. That's true. The point here, though, is that Jesus recognizes this guy as one of those casual disciples that I was telling you about. He's not following Jesus because he, he wants to follow him in discipleship. He's following Jesus because of the food and the fascinating miracles and the interesting teaching. We might call this guy in the modern vernacular a, a Klingon, right? Or a groupie. He's a groupie. He's a Jesus groupie. And Jesus knows that the, the scribes are masters at giving plausible excuses, right? These guys, they know the law. They know Jewish law, backward, forward. They know the Old Testament. Uh, this scribe is probably using his aged father as a cop-out. He doesn't want to give Christ the fullest measure of his devotion, so he's using his dad as a cop-out. Manipulating the law to his own advantage. Now, interestingly, this account comes right out of the Old Testament. Right? This excuse comes from Genesis 50. One of the greatest Old Testament patriarchs, Joseph, right? And Joseph promised Israel that he would bury his bones in the promised land. And so he asked and was permitted by Pharaoh to take Israel's bones to the promised land and the grave that he had already dug and to bury him, and then he would return to Egypt. So permit me first to go and bury my father, and then I will return, right? It's a biblical excuse, if there ever was one. But look at Jesus' shocking, shocking response. He says, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. Right? But you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now there's a what we call an apparent paradox here. How many of you have ever seen a dead person before? What do dead people do? Nothing, right? <laughs> dead people do nothing. So for a dead person to go and bury a dead person, it's really not going to happen, right? So, so what does Jesus mean here? What's, what's the point? 
Well, there's a few possibilities to resolve this problem. And one, we could say, um, you know, fairly recent archaeological discoveries have found that what they would do is when they buried a body, because it's an arid climate, they would wait a year and the flesh would decay off the bones and the son would take the bones and he put them in an ossuary or a bone box. So it's possible that this guy is asking Jesus to wait around for as much as a year for his father to die so that he can put his bones in a bone box and he can get his inheritance. That's one possibility. The other possibility is Jesus is probably referring to Ephesians 2, verse 1, where he says, the Apostle Paul says there that uh, we're, we're dead until we're made alive in Christ, right? So the idea is spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. They're dead, right? Dead as a doornail. They're not alive spiritually. Just leave them. Let them do their thing. You follow me. That's the other possibility. And the third possibility is Jesus may just be speaking uh, literally. Let the dead take care of their own. Right? Let them take care of himself. You just follow me. And it's designed more for shock factor. Out of those three options, I think I lean more towards the second option, that he's speaking metaphorically about spiritual death. Either way, what he's... What he's telling this scribe is the imperative, the urgency of following him. Listen, leave that alone. You come with me now. And, and let's proclaim the kingdom of God. And one writer said, Many a would-be follower of Christ has pleaded the requirements of social obligation or prior business demands as an excuse for not meeting the imperative of of obedience. Jesus rejects any and all such excuses. When Jesus says, you come with me or go and proclaim the kingdom of God, what follows this in Luke 10? The sending of the 70, right? in advance of Jesus on his way into Jerusalem, go everywhere and preach the gospel to everybody you come in contact with, right? And, and they were, in a sense, his ambassadors going before him, proclaiming his arrival. Talk about a missed opportunity in the gospel, right? If you don't follow me now, you're not going to be one of the 70. This historic occasion, the king is entering Jerusalem. And you're not going to be one of the heralds. Door to door for Jesus. By the way, kingdom of God, I don't really have time to unpack this baby. This is, this is the theme of Scripture, right? This is the overarching, unifying theme of Scripture, the kingdom of God. And I don't have time to go into it. I'll, I'll leave that to Thomas. <laughs> but let me just say this. Where the denominations and all the cults and everything that's out there, where they go off the tracks on this, in my mind, is one simple thing, and that is the presence of Jesus. Let me explain what I mean. There's no kingdom present if the king is not present. Okay? 
So in the future, what happens? There's a millennial kingdom. Why? Because the king has returned. Here, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom. Why? Because he's there. He's there and he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to usher in the kingdom. But in this unforeseen plan of God, they reject him. They crucify him. They kill their king. And what happens to the kingdom? It sort of pulls back for a time and goes to the Gentiles until such time that it gets back to the Jews. It's the unifying theme of Scripture. It's a hard to explain. There's a lot there. Um, I recommend a book to you. It's called The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva McLean. If you'd like to read, it's 400 pages. Great theology. It explains the kingdom throughout Scripture. I highly recommend it. But if you have any questions, my name is Thomas, and you can ask me after the service. Flimsy excuse number three. Okay, so we've seen the loss of comfort, the loss of fluff, the loss of fortune, (laughs) right? The loss of family. The loss of family. This is a hard one. Verses 61 to 62. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Sounds reasonable, right? Reasonable request. But Jesus said to him, no one. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Losing your family relationships because you're following after Christ, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. And I know many of you have had that experience where you've been rejected by your family because you made the decision to follow after Christ. My family was Roman Catholic. And I got written out of the will. (laughs) So I know what it feels like. But Jesus says, uh, losing your family to follow after me, that's not really an excuse. That's a flimsy excuse. Right? Jesus says, I I brought a sword. I, I came to divide family. What did he mean by that? Because you're either in or you're out, right? This is a commitment we're talking about. It may cost you your family relationships to follow Christ. And this is possibly yet another scribe. And he's, he's initiating the conversation again. And this one is, is semi-willing, right? I'll follow you, Lord. Okay, good. I'll follow you. Um, But just one uh, proviso, one uh, little quid pro quo here. Let let me go home and first say goodbye to my family. Okay? Is that all right if I do that? Now, how many of you have ever bought a car recently? Why do the car dealers not let you off the lot? Because they know that they will not seal the deal with you. If you say, I'm going to go and think about it for a while and I'll come back. Will you come back? The, the chances are very low you're going to come back, right? Jesus knows this. Listen to me. If you go away now, you won't come back. Very low probability. 
Uh, this idea to say goodbye to his family is actually from the verb that carries the idea of like separating yourself from the ranks. It's a military term. And he's actually asking to go home and, in a sense, cut his ties with his family. And, you know, like I said, on the surface, it seems like a reasonable request. But, but he's a scribe. And he knows how to manipulate the scriptures. And he's, he's doing this to challenge Jesus in the process. Hey, Jesus, I've got a biblical excuse for you this time. Listen to this one. First uh, Kings 19, verses 19 to 21. This excuse comes right out of the Old Testament. This scene takes place during the time where Elijah was passing the prophetic mantle to Elisha. And Elisha asks for permission to go home and kiss his parents goodbye before making a full commitment as a prophet. Heck, he even even killed the cows he was plowing with in the fields as a sacrifice. This is a biblical excuse if there ever was one, Jesus. I need to go home and kiss my parents goodbye. And Jesus says to him, oh no, 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 no. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And as I said, the kingdom is present with the king, right? So what he's really saying is no one... Listen, if you want to go home and kiss your parents, you're really not fit for me to be my subject in my kingdom. Listen, if you go away now... You're going to lose sight of what's most important. You will. It's a great picture. I mean, think of plowing the fields, right? Can you plow a straight furrow if you're looking over your shoulder, right? This is cow country. You, you've all seen this. You've seen the furrows. I know they use tractors now, but, but right? Can you plow straight if you're looking over your shoulder? Probably not. You lose sight of the target. And, and the problem is what Jesus is really addressing here is a divided heart. You can't do two things and do either of them well. You have to do one thing and do it well, and that is follow me now. If you go into this with a divided heart, you will be paralyzed by indecision. Imagine driving your car while you're looking over your shoulder. I've seen some of you do that anyway, so that's not a big deal. The reality is uh, as one sets his sights on the kingdom and on serving Christ, then earthly concerns, earthly values, everything earthly needs to diminish Right? Jesus should get our full attention. Without regret. Now, the funny thing about these scribes, as I've noticed this passage, as I've looked at this, they're pulling these Old Testament examples. They've pulled an Old Testament example from one of the greatest patriarchs in the Old Testament, right? And the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. And now they're saying they're worthy of the same consideration. 
And I would just ask you this morning, do you think you're worthy of the same consideration? The loss of comfort, the loss of fortune, the loss of family, they're they're actually fairly significant excuses for not following Christ, right? It seems that way on the surface, but they're flimsy in the sense that they don't hold up when submitted to the high call of Christ to follow him in discipleship. There is no higher calling. There is nothing more important. And this is, this is sort of a greater to a lesser argument here, that if these three excuses are flimsy, then anything else we could come up with is going to pale in comparison, right? So I would just ask you this morning, what, what flimsy excuses are you going to come up with? for not following the call of Christ. Hmm? What keeps you from following Christ with the fullest measure of devotion? And I have to take a few minutes to address a legitimate question here. I've got about five minutes left, and that's probably enough time. Listen, these people were looking at Christ eyeball to eyeball, right? He was there at that moment calling them to follow him. What does it look like for us to follow Christ now? He's not in front of us. So how do we follow him? And, and you know, this could be a great sermon series, but I don't have time to expound it all. So I'm just going to give you three ideas here. General big picture ideas of what it means to follow Christ now. First of all, let me just say faith. Faith. Trusting in Reliance upon the person of Christ and his sacrifice on your behalf, right? The substitutionary atonement. That's what we're talking about here. That Christ died as my substitute, and I am going to trust in that. I am going to rely in that. I am no longer going to try to please God in my own effort. I am going to be Christ's follower. I'm going to live for him. Okay? Trusting in faith that Christ is who he said he was and that he died in your place. The death that you deserved. Second, I'm just going to say submission. Faith and submission. What do I mean by that? Well, often in the Gospels we read that Jesus says, take up your what? Cross and follow me, right? He ties it with the idea of following him. Now, now what does it mean to take up your cross? Everybody says, well, it means we should be willing to die for Jesus, right? Is that what it means? No, that's not what it means. What it means to take up your cross is to, you have to think of it in terms of what crucifixion represented in the Roman times. And that is that when a person rebelled against Rome, they were made a public demonstration, okay, of, of what would happen to somebody if they rebelled. They were, they were paraded through the street. They were publicly humiliated. They were subjugated. They were crucified. And it was their last public act showing submission to Rome's authority over them. 
And so what, what taking up your cross and following Christ means is submitting to the authorities that you once rebelled against. It means taking up your cross and following after Him. It means that now, whereas before you were hostile to God, you are now in subjection to God. You're submitting to His authority. And because you're submitting to God's authority, you're submitting to the authorities He has placed over you. And you can look at First Peter on this uh, if you want. Peter, first half of Peter is all about submission. Okay? Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Why? Because he submitted to the Father's will. The third one, again, I don't have time to really expound on all of these. I'd love to, but the, I'm going to say obedience. The Great Commission, Matthew 28:16 to 20, if you look at that passage... What's the emphasis of that passage? I've heard this preached numerous times, and everybody says it's going, right? We need to go. No, that's not the emphasis of the passage. That could be translated more, as you are going, do what? Make disciples and teach and baptize, right? Okay. Back up a little bit and look at verse 16. Who's the passage addressed to? It's to the eleven, right? It's not to us. It's to the eleven. They went up to the hill. Jesus gave them marching orders. He gave them instructions. He said, do this. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Verse 18, uh, Jesus came up and spoke to them. And so... They were to go out, and as they were going, they were to make disciples. And as they were making disciples, there were two things they were supposed to teach them to do. Right? One was to be baptized. So, you, as those who have heard the message of the apostles, you need to what? Be baptized. If you're not baptized already, you need to get baptized. Because it's a, it's a public identification that you are now following Christ. That you are in Him by faith. The second thing is, this isn't for you to be teaching. I mean, it, by extension it is, but who's it originally addressed to? The eleven, and the eleven are to teach them to do what? Obey. Right? Obedience. Obedience. This is the emphasis of the passage for us. We are to be baptized and we are to obey all that we are taught about the commandments of Christ. Okay? Obedience. Following Christ in obedience. I'm going to have to end this here just to say... You know, it's one thing to to be saved and to show up on a Sunday as a casual disciple. To be uh, sort of tangentially attached to a body of Christ. To to kind of come and go Sunday after Sunday. But in light of what Jesus is offering you, 
and what He has given for you, He demands a greater commitment from you than anybody has ever requested before. Right? There's no excuses. There's no excuses. All excuses are null and void after today. Follow Him. Follow Him. It may cost you, but you will find unimaginable riches with Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, Your Word tends to hit us where we're most sensitive, where we're most vulnerable at times. And I know even preparing this message, I, I have to look in my own heart and say, uh, Lord, I do love comfort. I love comfort, and I... Lord, I just don't want to give it up. But I know that your spirit dwells within me. And for those who are here in Christ, I know your spirit dwells in them. And and we have the ability and we have the power to say no to sin and to self. And your spirit enables us to say yes to following Christ in obedience and faith and submission. Father, please work in each one here as they've heard your word, as it's convicted them, cause them not to walk out of this place in a way that is hardened, but instead yields the power that dwells within them, your Holy Spirit. Father, that's ultimately why we come and sit under the teaching of the word is is we want to be different. We want to be changed. We want to have our minds renewed. We want to cast off the flesh. We want to mortify it. And we want to live now for Christ. So please, our Father, use your word to mold us, to shape us into the image of your Son. Not for our sake, not so that things would be better for us in life, but that he might receive all the glory that is due him. We praise his great name, Jesus our Lord. Amen.